Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. With me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, uh, Cat, we met, and nothing blew up. I was actually a little afraid to give you a hug because I it just seemed like that would be that scene from Time Cop <laughs> where the two people would come together and then turn into a blob and or something, or the world would end. One of the two. So er, thankfully it was a relief. Yeah, yeah, everything went out. Everything went well, and uh, you had a, a great panel. Oh, thank you. Yes, that was the last episode. Um, so uh, about that really quickly. Uh, in that episode, uh, we were adding Mass Effect to the Top 25 RPG Countdown, but actually Mass Effect is ahead of the next game that we're going to be doing. The next game that we're going to be doing is number 15 on our list, and we're joined by special guest Bob Mackey. So please look forward to that segment, which is the next segment. But the first thing we're going to do in this episode, Nadia, is we're going to review Dragon Quest XI, uh-huh. which came out earlier this week, or yes. like I guess it would be last week on the PlayStation 4. Unfortunately, it came out at a very bad time because it came out right on top of Destiny 2 Forsaken and a little game called Spider-Man. And as you might expect, it proceeded to get absolutely no oxygen whatsoever, which is why I told you to write the article, Dragon Quest Eleven shouldn't be allowed to slip through the cracks. Yeah, although, uh, I don't know, I see it getting uh, some buzz. I think Tim Rogers' review really helped on Kotaku. Uh, I don't want to be a negative Nelly, uh-huh. but I've seen two basic narratives around DQ11 so far. Uh-huh. One is, I'm waiting until the Switch version. Yeah, that's a big one. Which I would not be shocked if DQ11 doesn't actually get the attention it deserves until the Nintendo Switch. Uh huh. And the other is, man, I do not like the music. <laughs> yeah, the music isn't very good, which is a it's a shame, but uh, it's also not exactly a game breaker. I don't know about that. Uh, I, I guess we'll discuss this. But as I was playing, I did notice the music was. There were times when it was good. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Especially. I love the the swoop that enters battle. I, I think it's really important to nail the swoop into a battle in a mm-hmm. turn-based JRPG. And the music itself was fine in that regard, but I noticed how tinny and MIDI-like it sounded, and that was a disappointment. Yeah, I really wish they would have gone uh, with the orchestra, like they did with Dragon Quest VIII for the US. And how long until there's a mod for the PC version that incorporates an orchestrated version? <laughs> I hope it's really soon. Yeah, I'm not even playing on the PC, but I'd love to see that, slash hear it. It'd be a nice piece of DLC if they can make it it work. But of course, everybody would then complain about the fact that it wasn't in the original game. Of course. I'm playing Valkyria Chronicles 4 on the Nintendo Switch, by the way. And Uh you should go read my article over on the site where I talk about it. Spoiler alert, I'm actually really enjoying Valkyria Chronicles 4. This shouldn't be a surprise, but I don't know. I was a little afraid that it wouldn't hold up. Yeah, you were a little bit worried going into it, as I recall. Yeah, I just thought, well, so it's a 10-year-old game, and it seems really similar to the previous Valkyria Mm -hmm. Chronicles. It's just not going to have the same impact that the previous one did, so I hope I end up liking it. And thus far, it's been an amazing fit for the Switch. Go read my article and find out why. But (laughs) I was noticing that there's no Japanese... There's no Japanese voice track in the Switch version, which was bumming me out initially, because I almost always use... The Japanese voice track. If no, it's I always an go for the English. I always go English. I, I just gotta. Why? Uh, here's the thing, and it's something I realized when I started playing Xenoblade Chronicles 2. I was like, oh, I really want to switch to the Japanese voices. And then 
I do, and it's like, here's the thing about Japanese voice actors, they're so good at what they do, but they always have the same voices for the same kinds of characters, and it drives me up the wall. Uh, there is voice acting in Dragon Quest Eleven, and if I recall correctly, there isn't a Japanese voice track in this one. No, I don't think Japan got voices at all. I think that's what I heard. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I actually think that the voices in DQ11 are pretty solid when they're like being used. Yeah, I, I actually really... The, the voice acting is one of those things where you're. it's a little bit strange at first, because especially they always have those like Cockney accents, but uh, it grows on you. So let's talk about Dragon Quest XI, um, and let's not spoil it, because a lot of people are just picking yeah. it up now, and it yeah. would be a bummer. But So you really like Dragon Quest XI, you gave it a perfect score, uh, yep. despite the the music. And, and I'm curious, like, why did you think that it's like, I, this game is so good that even though the music is a glaring weakness, I just feel the need to give it a really high score? Well, I wouldn't even call the, the music a glaring weakness. It's not as good as it can be, but it's not like I wanted to, to kill myself. When I say I turned it down, I just mean I turned the volume down. I didn't turn it off completely. Uh, but I did notice there were still some remixes I really liked. Um, there's actually a remix of a town from Dragon Quest Three called Japang, and they use that in kind of the Japanese-style town in, in Dragon Quest Eleven. I thought that was really clever. Um, but as for why I liked it, it's very. It is quite similar to Dragon Quest Eight in that you have your set cast, you have a quest to go on, um, and I really, really loved Dragon Quest Eight. And basically, yes, it is a lot like Dragon Quest Eight, but more. Um, I think Robert Boyd, our, our friend who made Cosmic Star Heroine, described it as that. Basically, Dragon Quest Eight, but more and better. And given how Dragon Quest Eight um, until Dragon Quest Eleven came around was my second most favorite entry in the series, uh, and it's still a game I love. I actually replayed it when it came out on the 3DS. Uh, it just uh, it just really captured me. For people who didn't play Dragon Quest Eight or missed out on the original, what does that mean to you to say it's Dragon Quest Eight but more? Uh, it means uh, it's very, very kind of basic RPG, but in a really compelling way. In that you have you have your characters and you have your quest and you have your your swords and your shields and. Uh, you still have a story that can really surprise you at times. I will say that that's very, very true for Dragon Quest XI. Um, you think it's going somewhere, and then it, it goes somewhere completely different. Yeah, in true Dragon Quest fashion, it seems pretty nice and pretty lighthearted at first. You you have a <laughs> you have the girl at the beginning who's like, "All right, Governor." I <laughs> <laughs> hear an Irish accent, or so I'm told. She is a very heavy like kind of British Isles accent, right? right? And you're just kind of into it. You see the slimes hopping around. And then there's a moment where it gets pretty dark. Uh, You see a town that's been completely burned out. And you're like, ooh, like there's a really strong mood whiplash. And Dragon Quest has always really excelled at nailing that kind of feeling. They really do, and that's something I'm hopefully writing about next week, because uh, I didn't want to like put anything too spoilerish uh, this week for reasons we already stated, but uh, Dragon Quest V was the master of that, that I, mood whiplash. Yeah, I completely agree. Dragon Quest V. <laughs> Dragon Quest V, there were so many instances where you would look at it and you'd go, wow, that was dark. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, looking back on it, I'm like, oh, yeah. But uh, with Dragon Quest Eight, when I think of Dragon Quest Eight, I always think of just a huge, full-blooded, big-bodied technical RPG that's 
really based around looking really good uh, for Mm -hmm. the most part, telling a story with truly epic sweep. Uh, It might not innovate particularly in terms of mechanics, but there's just so much there that it's an RPG feast. And that's clearly what Dragon Quest XI was going for. And it was also going for a heavy sense of nostalgia. Yeah, sure. there, there yeah. is definitely that undeniable uh, tinge of nostalgia, which I don't think is a bad thing at all. It's not like it is entirely built around nostalgia. It definitely has those cues where a nerd like myself can say, oh, wow, I see that. I really appreciate that. And even if a, a person who doesn't, who isn't familiar with Dragon <laughs> Quest doesn't notice them, they're not really missing out on much. You know what I mean? Like, there's still a great quest for them to go through. As a Dragon Quest hardcore nerd, what were some of the nostalgia bits that stood out to you? that other people might not notice. Uh this is going to this is how bad I am. I can't say what event it is because that will be a spoiler, but there is an instance where you come across uh a town and the music that is playing uh is kind of a sad music. It's definitely kind of a sad downbeat music and it a riff from the song is actually the boss battle theme, the final boss battle theme from Dragon Quest 3. And I was like, oh, man, <laughs> I know that. So musical cues and that kind of thing. There, There's a moment where um, you're being chased. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's totally an enemy from, like, the original Dragon Quest. And there are monsters from Dragon Quest everywhere bouncing around. It's pretty rad, actually. I really like it. Yeah, um, like I said in my review, the monster uh, animations are just unmatched. I mean, as someone who has been with the series since the very first game and seen these enemies as, like, you know, static sprites, I just love... I'm still not overseeing them come to life. Yeah, Dragon Quest XI, I think, has probably the best monster menagerie this side of Pokemon. I would even posit that because it doesn't go so overboard with the designs, it might be stronger, like... Yeah, it's just so iconic. Yeah, I know what you mean, and I think we've talked in the past about how Dragon Quest uh, actually makes for a very good monster collecting game. Uh, Dragon Quest uh, Monster Series is fantastic. I really wish they'd have Joker Three out here, but they probably never will. But you're right. Um, Dragon Quest is not one of those series where you look at a, a monster design like you do with Pokemon and say, "Oh, okay, that's a, that's a weird direction you went in." It's Toriyama is again like a master of his craft. He is unmatched as far as he takes a very basic thing like a dinosaur or a dragon and just makes it so much fun. What do you think of the cast? I really like the cast. Um, I don't know how many of them you have met, uh, but uh, Eric is kind of Eric is Eric. He's he's the first one you meet, and he's kind of you know down to earth. Uh, Kind of a, well, I want, he's, he's a Not thief. Not down to earth. Yeah, he's a, a thief. He's kind of bold. He's the thief. He, uh, the attitude I'm looking for is cocksure. <laughs> <laughs> I like that word. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say cocksure. What can I say? Under, understandable. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a bit of a, 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 you know, a standard thief character. You, he does get more of a story as the game goes on, as you might expect. But, um, some people, uh, I don't know if you met Veronica yet. Uh, no. Veronica is a little, you know, sassy girl um, who is twin sisters with Serena, who I love the way they bounce off each other. They're twins, but something happened to to Veronica to make her stuck in a little girl's body. And um, basically, they they bounce off each other. Like, Serena is such a, it's true to her name. She's very serene and kind of an airhead, whereas uh, Veronica is like the feisty, you know, attack magic user. And Serena is the, you know, calm, gentle kind of 
space cadetty healing magic user. So they have like a really good thing going on. And they, there's like a, a moment I really love towards the middle of the game that I can't really get into right now. Um, I love Silvando. Uh, Silvando is a bit of a controversial character because he's obviously coded to be gay or bi or pan or all. Um, he's He's very flamboyant. Although, one thing I really like about the game is that, yes, he's flamboyant, but people like him a lot. They never make fun of him for being that way. They, there's no, like, it's not like Persona where you have, like, the gay panic and the really, you know, kind of, uh, messages behind the, the his sexuality. But uh, Is that the gesture? That's kind of the gesture character, yes. Okay. Uh, Jason Wilson said that was his favorite character. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you, Savanda was by far my favorite character. Oh, interesting. Is it because of the way that he was coded uh, and the way people reacted? Or did he have like a particularly strong story arc? Uh, He does have a a very interesting and and pretty strong story arc. And he's also really powerful. Um, He's basically my uh, buffer, debuffer guy. And you always need one of those in Dragon Quest. And he's just, he's just make, he's just one of the characters who makes all the battles a lot of fun with his gestures and his one-liners and and the things that he does. And uh, he's, he's very, very upbeat and happy when you need it most put it that way how many hours does it take to get to your third character the for your party oh shoot um you i can't remember in terms of time but you go to the japanese town i mentioned earlier it's called hato it's kind of a hot springs town and i think that's where you uh meet up with uh, veronica i don't remember being too far into the game okay because it felt like i was stuck with two characters in my party for quite a long time because I mean, initially, it's just you, and then you meet Eric relatively early on, not yeah, long after early. not long after the credits roll, because like, there's the prologue, then the credits roll, and then you basically meet Eric, and then you start yep. going. And then it's just you and Eric for quite a while, and because it's just the two of you, uh, the battle system is fairly limited. Um, and so I was just kind of marking time until I eventually got my third character so that I could start feeling a little bit like... I, I had some more tactical options, as it were. Yeah, like uh, Veronica, like I said, is the the black magic user. So, of course, she has a lot of options. Although with uh, Eric, at that point in the game, I don't know if you can buy him a boomerang. That really speeds things along. Yeah, you can build him a boomerang. But, of course, I'm an idiot and went down the knife <laughs> tree. Yeah, yeah, I never take the knife tree. Uh, yeah, I'd probably play around the knife tree. Say, I never trust a boomerang tree and... Like I, I just I I was looking down the knife tree and I saw some good instant buffs, but also the boomerang has good instant buffs as well. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is Eric's not going to be in my party forever. <laughs> yeah, he I used him for quite a while, but uh, I eventually switched him out. Um, I go back to him once in a while because here's the thing with Dragon Quest: you always have you have your choice of a boomerang user if you want to attack everyone at once, or you can get a whip user who attacks a group of enemies at once. Uh, Savando is my whip user, and I feel if I have a whip user, I don't really need a boomerang user. This is more of a general comment on our JRPGs in particular um, than Dragon Quest XI in particular, but one of the things that always drives me a little crazy about the, the genre is when you start out initially, because you're still growing, you necessarily have far fewer options than you will mm-hmm. have much later, and there's always a point an inflection point where suddenly the combat or the gameplay becomes far more interesting Mm -hmm. and it's always a little bit of a chore getting to that point because up until that point it's fairly repetitive and that was 
maybe something that I was detecting early on in Dragon Quest XI. There, there weren't a ton of options. And so it's just kind of marking time until like things start to get interesting. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're right. And Dragon Quest in particular is a, a little bit guilty of that. Uh, start with Dragon Quest II, where you're expected to chase this prince cousin of yours until you like literally like from one place to the other until you finally find him and he joins up with your party. Uh, even Dragon Quest V, which is still my favorite, that had it with, um, I don't know if you remember early in the game, you kind of meet your friend Bianca and you decide, oh, we're going to investigate a haunted castle because we're kids. And Oh, that was so fun, though, like because you're a little kid. Uh, you really got this sense of adventure as you're exploring it, right? And then I think you meet the Saber Cub around that time. You meet the Saber Cub, right? Because these kids, like, they're like, hey, if you, okay, we dare you to go to the castle, and then we'll give you the Saber Cub. But um, it was a lot of fun, but it's also a point where you have to stop and grind a bit because, uh, yeah, you're going to get your ass kicked. Uh, but I don't think Dragon Quest Eleven was too bad for that. I see what you mean. I do feel like I was kind of just making things happen in the first, you know, 10 hours or so. And but it's once not it picked hard, up hard as it were. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, you uh, can I, just I, spend a whole bunch of time just kind of sitting around for a little bit, grinding a fair amount and you won't have much problems at all as long as you kind of use your abilities wisely. Yeah, I don't I have to say I don't think I ever can I don't I can't really recall a point where I did any grinding whatsoever. I just, you know, made sure I fought a good amount of battles and this is a game that where you don't have to fight battles if you absolutely don't feel like it. Yeah, because uh, the enemies aren't random encounters, so you can just get around them. Though yeah. I, there were times when I walked into rooms and it was so packed with enemies that I had to basically, like, <laughs> it was kind of impossible to get past them. And right. if they got to you, getting away from them could be pretty tough. And there were times where I was HP critical and I was sweating a bit because uh, there are autosaves, but it's kind of unforgiving in that regard and you can get set back a fair amount if you're not careful well um i think dragon quest tradition is if you get sent back to your last save point you still keep your experience and, and items and stuff like that but you get penalized half your gold yes uh, good tradition i think yeah yeah it keeps you on your toes doesn't it it does keep you on your toes but so from a progression standpoint it, so it's basically final fantasy 10 right is it I mean, are you going to disagree? Oh, you haven't played Final Fantasy X. No, I haven't. Um, oh, wow. Okay, Final? so Final Fantasy X has a an orb tree, right? Like, right. You're just, you, you get these little orbs, you put them in to the, the, the grid. It's a sphere grid. That's what right. it's called. And the the fun of the sphere grid is that you can kind of, if you have enough patience, take go down any direction that you possibly want. Mm-hmm. And you can theoretically start to invade other sphere trees, uh, sphere trees, and uh, build characters into different characters. It just takes a while, right? There's right. a kind of a completionism aspect to it, but for people who like that kind of thing, there's an appealing kind of linear sense of progression, but also at the same time, a sense of freedom. Right. And the Final Fantasy X progression system balance that out really well uh it it's a little they had something slightly similar in the license board in final fantasy 12 but i think final fantasy 10's sphere grid is much much better but uh so dragon quest 11 has a a tree where you uh basically every character is from as far as i can tell have a couple of paths that they can go down and Mm -hmm. then once you choose that path you're just like you get X number of points um, when you level up, and then you can just put them into the 
into the skills and start moving down. So like you picked boomerang for Eric. I chose daggers Um, with uh, the main character. You can choose, if I recall correctly, regular sword, like sword and board or great sword to start. Yeah. As well as they all have like inherent abilities. Like uh, Eric has uh, thievery abilities and like uh, the hero has luminary abilities, etc. Yeah. Uh, the by the way, the hero is pretty strong at the start. Like way stronger than Eric. <laughs> He's a bit overpowered, but that's okay. He's a luminary. I get because he, he has the the blazing sword and he has spells. Yeah. So he does so much of the heavy lifting to start, and basically Eric did some damage, but I just gave him all the potions and was like, "You're a healer now." <laughs> Eric tried. He gets the gold star. He tries. Poor Eric. But what are your thoughts on the skill tree? Um, as someone who finished the game. Um, it's actually funny you mention it because when I, and it's funny because when I played it, when I, when I played around with the skill tree, I'm like, oh, okay, it's basically Final Fantasy, sorry, it's basically Dragon Quest VIII's, uh, skill building system, but with more of a visual and with hidden stats, because one thing you didn't mention is that, uh, when you unlock, uh, these stats in, like, kind of a hexagon pattern, and you kind of wrap them around, like, these quote-unquote secret panels, you can unlock, like, some pretty good uh, secret abilities that way. So it is a little bit extra versus the Dragon Quest Eight system, but it is very similar where that game also let you say, okay, hey, uh, here's Angelo, for example. Do you want him to wield a sword? Do you want him to wield uh, bows and arrows? Do you want him to wield all of them? You can put, you have these points. It's up to you what you want to do with them. Uh, so I figured, I guess if, uh, I don't know what came out, Dragon Quest what came out first. I'm guessing it was... Uh, Final Fantasy X, so I wonder if Dragon Quest VIII took from Final Fantasy X, and, and just, uh, then, of course, Final, uh, Dragon Quest XI took from, uh, Dragon Quest VIII. Uh, see, Dragon Quest, uh, Final Fantasy X came before Dragon Quest VIII. Right. So, yeah, cause Dragon, but I wouldn't be surprised, since by that time Square Enix was, uh, a thing, and Dragon Quest VIII was a Square Enix joint, yes. I wouldn't be surprised if, they Dragon Quest Eight ended up taking from Final Fantasy X and uh, kind of going in its own direction. But the impression I get with DQ Eleven, especially compared to like DQ Nine, is that it just wants to be as straightforward as humanly possible. It's mm-hmm. not going to have the the monster collecting. It's not going to have the crazy multiplayer aspects of DQ Nine or the job system. It wants to be the kind of game that perhaps a new generation of young players can pick up and enjoy. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with that, especially um, in the piece I wrote about Dragon Quest uh, Eleven possibly falling through the, cl- the cracks. Uh, Dragon Quest Eleven is really, gosh, I don't want to say it's the first real Dragon Quest game we've had since 8, but 9 was on the 3DS. That was a little bit strange as far as Dragon Quest Yes, so actually. It was, it was still great. 10, of course, was online. Uh, we didn't get that at all. So here we have 11, which probably very purposely calls back to eight which was the last quote-unquote real dragon quest game most the one on consoles exactly exactly it's the console the last dragon quest console game there's the showpiece game for the entire series right i mean yeah now it's in hd hey it looks great in hd i have to admit yeah it does for the most part uh there are times when it definitely looks really good there are times when it looks just okay but uh, from a graphical standpoint, it's it's pretty up there, I would say, especially in battles. I love the monsters. The the yeah. monsters look. It's obvious that they spent so much time on the monsters. They really did, and even things like when the monsters enter the fray, like no two monsters animate the same way a lot of the time. Like you'll see like a group of 
Like, I, for example, I encountered a group of saber cats the other day, and some... You have to kill so many saber I cats know, in this game. And saber cubs. What the, what the hell? And Well, it's not cool. <laughs> not cool. I don't want to kill nice. them. I'd rather just... I just would rather that the saber cubs kill me and then devour that, my remains uh, so that they can grow up big and strong. I want a pet. <laughs> but, like, when they enter the fray, it's like some kind of, like, meowed one way, the others meowed another way, and it's just such a small but really interesting detail. And even when you kill an enemy with a critical hit, they their animation is different. You can tell they really just kind of blow back, and, like, you can tell they got walloped. It's really, it's really cool. The little the saber cats will kind of run around in circles. I totally bumped <laughs> my microphone. They'll totally run around in circles, and it's adorable. It's like, oh, saber cat is frolicking. <laughs> Yeah, oh my god, and they roll over and they're playing and like, I can't kill you, but you're gonna kill me. Kill or be killed, Nadia. Apparently. Close your eyes and kill the saber cat. The cutest thing I saw was there was a, I was wandering a field and I saw like a, a mother saber cat with her kid, with her cub just kind of sleeping under a tree. I'm like, ah, oh, god, I'm destroyed. I just want to point out that DQ5 was the best Dragon Quest because it had a saber cat party member. Yeah, and I always used him because he was fantastic. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. 100% part of my party. And I just want to say any RPG that lets you have an animal as your uh, as a party member, it's a clear winner in my book. Yeah, same with me. Um, that's why I'm really hoping the next uh, Dragon Quest for consoles or whatever they put it on really does let you do that monster collecting aspect again. I love that so much about Dragon Quest V. I would not be surprised if the next Dragon Quest, whenever it comes out, <laughs> is, in a, is on whatever the next permutation of the Nintendo Switch is put out. Yeah, um, I think... Uh, I wonder if they're taking so long with the Nintendo Switch version of, of Dragon Quest XI because they underestimated the Switch, like so many others. Well, it sold a ton of copies in Japan in any case, so... Yeah. It's practically yeah. universal over in Japan, but when it comes to DQ11 on the Switch, I, I don't know, like, I think they're just having a hard time with memory constraints. This is, like, pure speculation on my part. Right. But everything I've heard suggests that there has been some kind of uh, tech problem behind it. That's been a real problem, which is why we haven't seen Final Fantasy XV on the Nintendo Switch either. And my cat is now purring into the microphone. Hello, but, Hamish. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, um, I am... I By the time we get Dragon Quest uh, twelve, it's probably going to be like the Nintendo Switch 2 or whatever. They don't exactly put those out on a yearly basis. No, they don't, do they? Uh, yeah, that's... Um I compared uh, a lot of the RPG series, including uh, Dragon Quest, to Halley's Comet, where it comes for, enters our orbit for a while, and disappears for, like, 70 years. Because, like, DQ9 came out, like, five years after DQ, uh, DQ8. It, it, yep. was a long, it was a long wait. And then it we was. had, then between DQ9 and DQ11, because 10 doesn't count, uh, it was an even longer wait, so it'll be several years before we see a DQ12, because they put so much work and art into these games. But what do you think of the the, the system where you become powered up? Uh, I forget what exactly it's called. Oh, you, no, you get all glowy. The pep system, yes. Um, I, oh, I think it's, so it's straight up pep system. It's called pep, yeah. That's, and that's, pep been in previous, that's been in previous DQ games. Uh, has it? I, I remember, I think it's new, and they substituted uh, from 8. Uh, 8 used to have a tension system, which was um, a little bit similar, oh. except you had a lot more control over it. You could increase your your uh, character's tension, and every time you increased it, it would, like, multiply. So 
tension increased by five one turn and then 25 the next turn. And if you waited long enough and you didn't get your tension broken, you could utterly destroy whatever was in front of you. And it yeah, could be pretty devastating. That was a big part of the strategy of fighting a boss in previous Dragon Quest games. So Yeah, yeah. And one thing about the pep system, I will say, is that you don't have quite as much strategy because... Um, as far as I can tell, pepping up seems to rely on how much you're hit and how much damage you do. It's a little bit like limit breaks, except you can't tell when you're about to enter that limit break uh, status. So it's uh, you do get some really cool effects, and you can get some very useful uh, kind of uh, attacks out of it. And I like the enemies can use it, and if an enemy uses it against you, it can actually it can re- pep can really turn the tables either way for you or the enemy. And uh, some of the some of the attacks are hilarious. Like there's one attack. Like there's an you, t- you were talking about nostalgia earlier, and there's actually a part in Dragon Quest Eleven that's uh, basically emulates Dragon Quest Four's uh, um, Colosseum bit, uh, right down to the music. You're fighting the Colosseum against these these weird ass uh, people, and there's these two characters called one's called the Underdigger, which is haha, and uh, he has his partner, and they do this move, this this pep up move called Bums Away. And they basically they fly up into the air and like just come crashing down on you, and it's actually really hilarious and really devastating. I was at least in the early going not using my super attacks because I liked the extra damage that I got yeah. from getting pep. So I just thought, oh, well, it'd probably be more useful to just be able to do a lot more damage on a consistent basis as opposed to just removing my pep status i mean the pep status eventually goes away automatically but yes. in that time like you can do a lot of damage just over time and i i, I don't know like i don't know how i feel about that i, I think there's a uh, a good choice like oh you can either use all of your pep at once and get a, a really nice burst of uh damage or you can do a whole lot of damage over time but i, I felt like there was a clear advantage in just being able to do a lot more damage over the course of multiple battles yeah, the game is actually, uh, in his little hint screens that pop up during the loading uh, parts of the game, they actually tell you you should not squander your pep all at once. Although it can be... Um, balancing pep is a, is a very interesting task because uh, you might not have noticed, but when your pep is about to expire with the next turn, your character's, like the, the halo around your character's portrait starts to flash. So you have an indication, okay, this is where I really let loose. And that's fine, except let's say, for example, you have another character who just pepped up, but the two of you can unleash a devastating attack together. Do you let that other character be and just let them ride out the rest of their pep? Or do you just expend your pep and their pep at the same time for that, you know, just that really big hit? You you have to decide. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that is a reasonable choice to be making, especially when you're in the middle of a, a particularly tough boss battle. Yeah, exactly. Because there are times when you're just like, oh my god, this boss, this is a tight tight battle, I just need as much damage as I can possibly get right now. Yeah, and uh, true to Dragon Quest tradition, the bosses, they can be a bear. <laughs> you know, I always liked that, though, that the bosses yeah. will give you a lot of trouble. That's uh, always been kind of a case in Dragon Quest where it really forces you to think about how you use your abilities and how everybody synergizes together. Yes, as opposed yes. to Final Fantasy, where the bosses are often a fair bit more basic, I feel mm-hmm. like. 
Yeah, bosses in Final Fantasy, I find they have a lot more weaknesses than Dragon Quest bosses. Uh, let's say you have a, a monster, a, dra- a boss who's weak against fire. You just spam fire attacks and they're dead. That rarely works for Dragon Quest. Yeah, it's kind of like Persona as well. I mean, exactly. Yes. Uh, if you get, if you are able to forge the right personas, you're probably going to steamroll a boss without mm-hmm. too much trouble, um, as long as you just have enough sustain. Whereas in Dragon Quest, it feels like the en- bosses can do way more burst damage, so you have to be really careful yeah. about how you um, defend your party and everything. Yeah, you're right. Bosses not only do a lot of burst damage, but they can attack twice or three times in one turn. And that's one thing that I've always thought has been really great about Dragon Quest gameplay. It's it's a deceptively simple RPG, but there's always, even though people are like, oh, well, the battle system's basically the same every time. It's like, well, no, actually, really. like, they've really honed it into a, they honed it to a fine edge in the 16-bit era, and it just mm-hmm. works. You know, it's it just does. good. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of reason to screw with it, as far as I'm concerned. Have you messed with the crafting at all? I have, actually. Uh, that's the, the fun-sized forge, quote-unquote. Uh, it's actually a lot of fun. I, I messed with it a lot. Uh, I got cheap and decided not to buy my own stuff. And just there's a lot of stuff lying around Dragon Quest XI. And you say, oh, okay, I'll use this and, and make a cool boomerang. Uh, finding recipes is another interesting challenge in the game because you can't make anything until you have a recipe. I think with Dragon Quest VIII's alchemy pot, you could just throw whatever in there and or even look up a, a recipe and, uh, you know, it would be made, but you can't get away with that in Dragon Quest Eleven. And just the the forging aspect, once you get the hang of it, it, it presents a really interesting challenge. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I didn't really understand the hone minigame, uh, mm-hmm. where you use X amount of things to hone the thing, that, and it determines how much better it makes it. Like, oh, I completely messed it up, and I, then I felt bad. <laughs> Well, the good thing about the the fun size forge is that even if you make something and you screw it up or you try to hone something and you screw it up, there's really not a big penalty except uh, in terms of trying to hone something, yet you have those perfectionist pearls that you have to use to hone something, but you won't destroy your item. And even if you you make a new item and you don't and you doesn't it quote unquote doesn't turn out well, you don't really have any penalties for it. It's still the same old item. You just don't get any perfectionist perfectionist pearls for making it but i wanted perfectionist pearls I know. <laughs> and it, it uh, is one of those things where like ah oh, why why did i screw this up so bad why am i such a failure uh but as for um the way it works uh, just briefly is if you do really well making an item a weapon or whatever uh you can basically get up to plus three so you know dragon slayer plus three so obviously that's a really good blade you get a bunch of perfectionist pearls for doing so well the first time around and then you can use those pearls to hone uh, other uh, weapons and items and uh, armor bits that aren't plus one, plus two, plus three. So you can basically just, uh, if you have a rare uh, piece of item, a rare suit of uh, of armor that you really like and you want to make it stronger, you don't want to get rid of it yet, just you can uh, hone it on your forge and make it better. So as someone who is a huge Dragon Quest fan going way back, all the way to the original game... Are there any sur- particular superlatives that you would accord to, to DQ11 outside of the graphics where you would say DQ11 does blank best? It do- has this thing that I just think really sets it apart from the rest of the series. Or is it kind of uh, middle of the road for the ser- in terms of how the series goes? 
Um, I definitely like the way the overworld is handled. Uh, maybe not so much the fact that it's not a big open world. It reminds me more of like uh, the drag. Uh, sorry, the Monster Hunter games before World, where it was you know it was more separate. But you still have these very big areas that are filled with things you can find and enemies you can just kind of observe and uh, just secrets here and there. And as much as I loved Dragon Quest VIII, and it was probably the first really open world I really got into, there wasn't a lot to do in that open world. You could maybe find a, a treasure chest here and there. Uh, Dragon Quest XI's world feels more alive than any of the others so far, in my opinion, other than ten, because I have no idea how that feels. Yeah, I, I think making the point about how alive it feels is a good one, because... DQ9 was the first one to truly have no random battles, am I right? Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, but that was a DS game, so necessarily it's just, it's it looked, it was a good looking DS game, for yes. sure, but it just can't hold a candle to a PS4 game in terms of graphics, obviously. So, yeah, you're right, like, how alive the world is in terms of seeing all the monsters and everything kind of running around. Uh, that, that that was pretty cool. Um, I already mentioned the the bit where you're getting chased and all of the like the slimes are like, oh, I am GTFO. No! <laughs> I am not having any of that. Yeah, that was a God. It's like a big black dragon like coming after you, and that's like that was like kind of a shocking moment when you're a big Dragon Quest fan because you you obviously know the menagerie of dragons in that series and who is the strongest uh, of this class of monsters that's already pretty damn strong to begin with and it's like when you see a black dragon that early in the game you're like oh nope i want none of that i'm getting out of here and of course the monsters are like oh we want none of that either and they just start taking off so final thoughts on dragon quest 11 um i will just say that one of the thing there are two things that dragon sets dragon quest apart in terms of rpgs everybody always says it's old school it's classical and that's true but it's kind of a tired um approach to the series mm-hmm. i think that dragon quest has a razor sharp, finely honed, wonderful battle system that just really shows how great can be towards the middle portion and end portion of the games. Um, as you, it really challenges you to use it to the maximum, absolute maximum when you're fighting bosses. So that's one thing I really like about Dragon Quest. And I think certain Dragon Quest games have been better than others. I thought DQ5's uh, monster collecting system was just top class like mm. yeah and i thought dq9's job system was phenomenal uh the other thing that i think it does really well is tragedy because Mm -hmm. you get to know these characters really well it has relatively a few characters but it does a really tremendous job of developing them uh there's there are scenes and this is the same in dq11 as well where you can talk to your party members you get to know them and then so when bad things happen to them, as they often do, and they often are really bad, <laughs> really, really bad things, you're yes. like, oh, 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 my God. Yeah. yeah. So Dragon Quest knows how to mix the, the comedy and the tragedy that sharpens both of them. And as it's a consequence. It never feels generic. It is mm-hmm. really distinctive. And it, it can be a little slow to start at times. It really moves at its own pace. And no, I don't like the battle system. But... I think it is such a rock-solid classical JRPG experience that if you like RPGs, you really owe it to yourself to experience it. Yeah, honestly, that's basically the the most basic recommendation I can give to you is, if do you like retro, you know, do you like RPGs? Do you like JRPGs? This is as JRPG as it gets. 
It's like the bedrock of the entire it genre. It really is. The, the bedrock of the entire genre. And just they don't just, you know, let it lay fallow. They they're they like you said, they honed it to a, a razor point. It's just it's just a, a a good solid experience all the way through. Yeah, I think that great storytelling and a really high quality battle system just never goes out of date. Exactly. And I think Dragon Quest's battle system is much better than Persona's. I mean, if if we're being totally honest, because Persona's there's a lot of fun in uh, forging the, the 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 personas and mm-hmm. getting different abilities onto them and everything. But in terms of hitting the weaknesses and stuff and the buffs, it's actually extremely straightforward. Whereas Dragon Quest, there there are different levels, and in the we've talked about the tension system in the past and right and like being able to abuse that or when you need to be doing burst healing or. It does a phenomenal job of utilizing buffs and debuffs in an interesting way. And that is, it does. like I said, bedrock RPG stuff. So. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next segment and talk about the next entry in our top 25 RPGs list. All right, and we're back. And now it's time to continue the top 25 RPG countdown. And this is number 16. Let's have a listen. Yep, number 16 is Earthbound, the cult favorite by Shigesato Itoi. And joining me are two massive Earthbound fans. One of them is, of course, Nadia. Say hi, Nadia. Hi, I very much approve of this uh, this entry. Thank you. And and also special returning guest, host of Talking Simpsons and What a Cartoon, is Bob Mackey. Hey, everybody. I actually didn't know this was number 16, and if I knew that, I would not do this podcast out of protest. <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's not number, number one, one, right? It's number one. <laughs> okay. You have deep and beloved feelings in your heart for this game. Why does it matter so much to you? I, I honestly think uh, it's obviously, I mean, obviously it's a very, very good game uh, with some very unique things happening, but this hit me at the perfect time in my life. I was a day one Earthbounder. Uh, whatever day one could be in 1995 because there were no release dates back then. But uh, it hit me. I was the same age as the main character. I played through it multiple times that summer and I just have so many great memories of that game. And a lot of it is really tied up into my experience with it as a a 12 or 13 year old kid. How about you, Nadia? Uh, I actually have a little bit of a a different story here, but uh, Bob, let me ask you quickly. Uh, were you not turned off by the like reviews the game got? Because remember it being panned by critics back in the day. I was not. In fact, I was a little salty about those because what really got me into the idea of Earthbound was, I believe, Nintendo Power's Epic Center. Mm-hmm. And they gave it a lot of coverage. And I loved RPGs at the time, but it was doing all of the RPG stuff in, with a modern context. And right. even in the mid-90s, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Nobody does that. You can order a pizza in this game and you fight with like baseball bats and frying pans. It's so cool. I don't care if it looks kind of weird. And I, I, don't, I don't trust these reviewers, folks. Never trust reviewers. But, uh, <laughs> even even back then. I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, like I, I was kind of a, a Earthbound faithful in pre-release times because the the concept just looks so cool. Right. Oh, so that's really interesting. So I remember looking at it at GamePro and being like, oh, uh, you know, this review, which was terrible. I realize that now. But back then, I was like, okay, this sounds really not for me. Uh, hard pass because I was really high on Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger. Uh, so I actually wound up playing Earthbound much, much, much later in my life, uh, about ten years ago, uh, believe it or not. And it actually, I actually really got into the game 
the same year that a whole bunch of people close to me died. So I felt like, for some reason, I just felt like, you know, I need something good. I need something warm. And I remember someone had been talking about Earthbound around the same time. And I said, you know what, let me give it another try. Because I remember playing a ROM back in the day. Oh, my God. And I wasn't really into it. But I said, I'm going to give it another try. And it just it just really resonated with me, this, this message of, like, uh, it, it's hard to describe. It's very, very dark and sad, very, very hopeful at the same time. And that's something I still appreciate about the game very much and i'll actually just go ahead and, and drop in a, a a hint here saying uh, go read my review for the for the snes classic version of the game it's up on us gamer and i kind of go more into why i love the game so much over there all right for a little context uh, earthbound came out in 1995 on the super nintendo it was a follow-up to mother on the famicom Mother never came out here. Um, it was under development for five years. Mm-hmm. And Satoru Iwata apparently reprogrammed the entire game by himself. Uh, just another game he saved. Uh, he yeah. did that a lot. He, he did that quite a bit. Pokemon, Earthbound, you know, just small games that no one cares about, but we appreciate it very much. Yeah, he was a huge instrumental force in getting that game finished. He was sort of like airlifted in as, you know, Nintendo's <laughs> Miracle Man. And, as he um, does. As, as yeah. tends to happen. I, I did a Retronauts episode about Earthbound, and I don't remember all the details now, but we really went into the the deep history of just how uh, effed up the development was for that game and how he sort of redid everything in 18 months wow. by himself. He promised a year, but it was 18 months. Oh, that wow. is completely ridiculous, but he was that kind of person. I mean, we've talked before on this podcast how he was the miracle worker who basically made Pokemon Gold and Silver work. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's an interesting tidbit that I found. Um, Shigeru, this is apparently the first RPG that Shigeru Miyamoto finished. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I'm not saying he's a busy guy, right? Right, so, of course. It, it so seems like the kind of game that Shigeru Miyamoto would really get into. A very kind of weird, artsy game that has a lot of interesting musical flourishes. It's just kind of right in his wheelhouse, right? Yeah, it is. And that's very interesting, actually, because around that time, he probably would have been like up to his eyeballs in super mario 64 trying to get that like working and done oh god that's right yeah because around that time it was the first game in the series to make it out in america and it's the only one uh until mother came out with earthbound beginnings uh it was marketed horribly it should have mm. faded into obscurity uh bob was already talking about that it had the 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 smell it, the it didn't sniff. do a good job of telling you what the heck it was. <laughs> yeah, actually, I want to I want to go back on that a bit. I think the marketing was good, uh, but they didn't they didn't really. I think they weren't expecting people to not receive it well because it was very of the '90s marketing, where it was in your it face yeah. with farts and pizza smells and making all of your magazines smell bad. And <laughs> this was like the age of Ren and Stimpy, so they were really savvy about that. And I think Nintendo, this was like uh, I don't know the second or third time they were trying to get RPGs off the ground in America. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to let you know it was an RPG. Right, that's a good point. I never thought of it that way. Uh, I, I mean, am- ultimately, uh, Pokemon was what really made RPGs a big deal in America, and I, I don't think they were expecting that. Yeah. Not even Final Fantasy VII? It was I was Pokemon? going to say, maybe, seven. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. I mean, I mean, in terms of Nintendo. Right. Uh, but well, also, I think I th- it was a one-two punch of Pokemon and Final Fantasy VII, but I digress. I, think, I also think a lot of people bought Final Fantasy VII not knowing what it was, and then they, they found out, <laughs> I don't like RPGs, so none, no more of this for me. So this is two years before Final Fantasy VII. 
Uh, so in any case, Earthbound did not sell well. It did not do very well. No. Uh, it should have faded into obscurity. Uh, we were talking about Fantasy Star 4, a similar, it, which came out, I believe, the same year here in America on the Sega Genesis. Yeah. Two games that were very much throwbacks that should have maybe faded into obscurity, but were held up by as cult favorites. And I, I think that Smash Brothers really helped because I knew of Earthbound, mm-hmm. but... I had never played Earthbound. I did not own a, a Super Nintendo. Uh, I had read about it on in Nintendo Power, but although, but all I knew about it was that it was kind of weird. I didn't yeah. know anything about the characters. I didn't know anything about the story. Whatever. I just knew that it was this weird RPG thing. And so I, so Smash Brothers, I feel, was maybe a lot of people's introduction to NES. Yeah, that, that makes sense. There's also, I mean, it was a lot of people's introduction to Fire Emblem as well, so Smash was yeah. really good for that sort of thing. Yeah, I well, think I mean, so. Fire Emblem literally had never come out here. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Earthbound was this kind of obscure thing. And because uh, if, I feel like the kind of people who picked up Ness were the kind of people who just were really attracted to offbeat characters who wanted to try something new. Right. And Ness himself was such a distinct and weird character with his... Uh, the PK uh, thunder that would send you uh, flying back to the stage, uh, the PK fire, the baseball bat. It, it yeah. just naturally sold, it, it sold the game. It, it did. made you want to kind of try it. And so, and I, I, I think, um, I think Ness was buried pretty deep as sort of like an Easter egg character because mm-hmm. it, I think it was months after the game came out. Only did I discover he's in the game. Hmm. Yeah. You had to unlock him by beating the master hand. Uh, I forget exactly how, uh, where but he was in Smash Brothers mainly right away. Right. Uh, in any case, it was uh, difficult to find for a long time. It was extremely requested on Virtual Console. Finally made out to the Wii U and 3DS Virtual Console, then the SNES Classic, where a lot of people said, ah, this game isn't as good as everybody says. Uh, because, I mean, let's be honest, it's old school. It's very yeah. old school yeah. in many respects. And I've always said, and I said this in my review as well on US Gamer, uh, once you get past Peaceful Rest Valley, that's when the game for me really starts to pick up. But I had played the game uh, a few times before, at least tried to play it. And I always remember getting stuck on that part because, yes, I was an RPG fan at the time, but I did feel like uh, the menus were archaic and the, you know, being having the limited Im- inventory space, especially when you're stuck with just Ness, that really frustrated me. So, but once I finally forced myself to get over that hump, I really started to enjoy myself. I mean, outside of the outside of the limited inventory, I really feel like there are a lot of modernizations in the game that I still see RPGs not do, like the enemy encounter thing, where after yeah, a certain point, enemies will run away from you in uh, on the map, and if you sneak up behind them, you can just win instantly. And I can't think of anything else that has done that. So I feel like it's not a really tough game to return to, but Earthbound Beginnings is a real pain in the ass. Uh, that <laughs> is, is. A, that is a grindy, so many random encounters, like three steps between random encounters it is a it is a rough old game and uh i recommend uh buy it but like play it on an emulator where you can like hit the fast forward button (laughs) yeah definitely or watch a let's play so on the face of it it's you know a fairly zany take on dragon quest uh fairly standard Mm -hmm. menu driven rpg with psy attacks serving as your magic uh but it, it does differ in like a, a few crucial respects uh no random encounters which yes thank you uh, this was the the year before Chrono Trigger, I want to say. Um, um, at least it was in the US. Round. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the random encounters, uh, the idea of not having random encounters in a Japanese RPG 
still relatively uh, still relatively forward thinking at that time. I yeah. mean, there there are sort of de facto random encounters in which you will have to fight some enemies because they will just chase you on the map yeah, and you can't get away. You. But again, after a certain point, uh, they will flee you, and it's so nice to go back to old areas and not have to worry about fighting really easy enemies and wasting your time. Yeah, yeah, you just kick them in their back and they're dead. Yeah, the, the thing that kind of stood out to me is when I was playing it. I played it for the first time on the SNES Classic not too long ago. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, no, I like I said, I never got around to it. It took me a long time to finally be able to play it on emulator. But uh, a thing that stood out to me was how you would encounter an enemy on the map, and then another enemy would sometimes run mm-hmm. in to join them. Yes. Which was really bad the first time you encounter the sharks at the arcade in one of the yes. first major areas in the game, because the sharks are pretty strong. Like, these they gang are. members are pretty strong, and they will gang up on you and call in support. And it's a real pain in the butt. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. There are definitely moments like that in the game. And I also remember the uh, the entourage of cops beating up on you. That was also a pain in the ass in the same area. That is pretty awesome and, and kind of subversive in that one of the first major battles in the game is you uh, beating up all the cops in town. Yeah. <laughs> who, who sort of <laughs> kind of pull you into a room to kill you. Yeah, now they do. I know do. why you like this game so much, Bob. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's leftist propaganda. Um, another thing that's interesting, uh, enemies will be automatically defeated if you're strong enough. Yes. Which is, uh, I, I like that. It's a nice little time saver. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what Bob was going over uh, earlier, and I, I still find it very satisfying to just kind of go up behind an enemy, like kind of tap them on the shoulder and kill them. Uh, here's the thing that's very Japanese. Uh, you have this abs- absentee father mm. who you talk to on the phone. And they basically say, I love you, here's some money. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, I think really it's definitely a, a nod toward the fact that, I don't know, so many people had absentee fathers in Japan in the 90s because yeah. they're always at work, working yeah. their butt off. So it's a thing in Pokemon, too. Where's Ash's dad? Ugh. It is funny. And a- even Sorry, in the credits to the game, you see all the characters and their names under them. Ness's dad is just a ringing phone. Yeah, it's just a phone. <laughs> And he rings you once in a while to say, it is kind of sad. Yeah, I love you. Here's some money. And the money isn't even like his money. You're the one who earned it beating up the enemies. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, oh, good job beating up the cops. Here's some money for your credit card. (laughs) What a cool (laughs) dad. And then you had to, it went straight to your credit card account. So you had to withdraw the money from an ATM. Yeah, which are actually open all the time, unlike Japan's ATMs, I'm told. Uh, well, no, it's getting much better now, Nadia. I had no problem, to be honest, when I was in Japan. I went to a 7-Eleven, oh. and I was good. That's good. The, the money comes out so clean and nice. It does. That said, uh, it is still a bit murky, uh, even compared to some of the games that came out at that time. Uh, it definitely doesn't hold your hand. It's not always clear where you're supposed to be going. Uh, it does require uh, a decent amount of grinding, especially mm-hmm. in the early going. Definitely in the early... It, yeah. it doesn't. It's not shy about throwing you into the deep end. I, I think it's really jarring when you don't have a party member with you and you're running into enemies who can straight up kill you. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, that that initial hump. Once you get over that and you have Paula, then things get a lot better. And also when you get Jeff and he can bottle rocket every boss into oblivion. 
That is really true. And I think there is something, there's an item in the game if you're bad at RPGs, especially bad at RPG bosses. And those are the multi-bottle rockets for Jeff. Yes. And they can kill most bosses by using one or maybe two. So whenever I play through the game now, I don't buy them because (laughs) it just makes the game way too easy. It does. I think the Diamond Dog is the only one who can deflect it. And there's that Bowie reference for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I only got that much later in life. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I kind of wanted to quit. When I was in this dungeon, uh, the first real dungeon, where mm-hmm. you're, uh, I forget the exact context, you're in a cave. So it's after the arcade, you manage to get through the treehouse, you, you're going into a cave, you're still alone, and mm-hmm. I got all the way to the boss, and I fought the boss, and I died, and I got shot all the way back to my house. Yeah, mm. that sounds about right. Yeah. And it is... They don't punish you too much, though, because uh, with like games like Dragon Quest, you... Um, you lose half of your gold and you keep your experience. The same thing happens in Earthbound, but you only lose half of the money you're carrying. Right. And when you de- when you defeat enemies, your dad puts that money not in your pocket, but in your bank account. So that money is still safe. Thankfully. Yeah. Enemies uh, can't steal your bank account. <laughs> so you guys, you guys really care about Earthbound, and you can probably speak to this better than me, but I think the reason it's still really... It, it really resonates now is because first of all it's a very bright fun cheery rpg it's weird it has an odd sense of humor in terms of the look of the world the enemies that you're fighting but it also gets really dark at times especially with the final boss that you fight uh yeah and it's like a very japanese take on a stephen king novel uh, specifically yeah. it it's very very similar to it and i've i pointed that out a few times in, uh, in a feature i wrote but yes uh, i think that's one of the things that kind of like attracted me to it as well is like hey i know this story yeah it's very it's a very warm heartfelt rpg i it's it's warm and authentic in a way that i don't think you see in a lot of games no, uh, Shigesaru Itoi, um, he is a professional copywriter, and I think that sort of skill for his writing leaked off into the, the game itself. Yeah, he did write all of the, all of the text in the game is mm-hmm. written by him. Actually, I think he dictated it to his assistant, uh, because he's a big shot. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's all, it's all, like, you rarely see a game that is such from a singular mind in terms of the writing, but right. that's why it's, he's not a, he's not a gamer, uh, he's not a guy who makes video games. In fact, he's made all the mother games, and that's it. Yeah. And I think there's like a, a bass fishing game for Super Famicom. He also helped <laughs> yeah. make. But uh, yeah, that's why. And I mean, even Mother Three in terms of writing is even better. I don't think it's a better experience, but um, it is a fantastic game that everyone should play, especially mm-hmm. if you're into the series. Definitely. I I think that the first moment that you kind of know things are going to be a little bit different from this game is when. I already mentioned the sharks, but going to a, so many games, so many RPGs that came out at this time were epic fantasy or epic sci-fi, right? Mm-hmm. And then in this game, you go down to the local arcade that is occupied by a gang that look like, you know, the sharks from uh, West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> and when you beat them, you're fighting a guy who has a robot. Yeah, And it's just got this really distinct vibe to it that I I think is fun. And I I think that vibe only gets stronger as you go. What do you think, Bob? 
I totally agree. In fact, I'm playing uh, Octopath Traveler now and really enjoying it. But when I get to the story stuff, I'm like, this is the most generic, tropey, self-serious RPG stock stuff. Why can't they just have fun? Why can't they make these stories more fun? Because ultimately, they don't matter that much. And I just kept thinking about Earthbound. Like, why can't this be fun here? And then I did, then I just stopped listening to the story stuff altogether. But yeah, Earthbound uh, didn't take itself seriously and ended up telling a great story because of that. What else makes it stand out to you? I think uh, we didn't mention the music, which is great. Yeah, um, fantastic. It's, it's uh, really hip- interesting, isn't it? It is. Very atmospheric. Yes, it's by Hip Tanaka, who's a like super famous Nintendo composer, and Keiichi Suzuki, I believe is his name. And uh, he is a he is a rock musician. He's not a video game musician. So, uh, And he also did the score for uh, the Satoshi Kon movie, Tokyo Godfathers. But uh, their efforts combined, and also stealing from the Beatles, made Just a great a soundtrack. And I, I <laughs> still don't understand how that game is now available without altering those samples. Don't tell Paul McCartney, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Uh, just uh, just keep it on the down low. But uh, one thing I, I love about the soundtrack is, uh, and you'll hear it, I think, even in the first cave you enter, is how there's no music in the cave, just these weird echoing sounds, and it still freaks me out. And the same goes for the final boss battle. It really drives home the kind of terror, I suppose, yeah. uh, this weird, dissonant, freaky uh, soundtrack. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, especially when playing it today on a like nice speaker system. I was playing it on just a crappy TV with mono audio mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Good and I'm like, wow, the stereo separation adds so much to the music and the sound effects. It is it is a real audio delight, the game. It they is. put a lot of I think a lot of the the uh, memory in the cartridge is dedicated to the music. I think they had to ask Nintendo for more just to make uh the samples, you know, mm-hmm. uh, better quality and and add more samples as well. Yeah, they kept the size of the game kept growing until finally it became a 24 meg cartridge, which is a funny thing because when you look at the game, you wouldn't immediately think, "Oh, this is like the best looking, most advanced game on the Super Nintendo," but right. it's as big as like Super Metroid. Yeah, and um, one thing you uh, you probably wouldn't have appreciated as a kid either is how how many of the areas are seamlessly linked. Like especially uh, early on in the game, with the, when you go from like your house to right down to town and to one it like that was uh that was that sort of thing was not common in games back in the day yeah you're totally right i love the sense of scale in the game and that they do cheat a little bit especially when you get to foresight which is a very uh-huh. tiny big city but it is <laughs> it's it's great that there's no world map you don't step on an icon of a town and you're in the town you just you walk through the town then you walk to the next area and it's just all one seamless world that's all at the same scale mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so one thing that we always do when we're doing this kind of, uh, when the, we're doing the countdown is we always do our favorite moment in the game. The moments that really stand out to us to this day and make the game special, I suppose. And we were talking uh, about the the big final battle with our Eldridge Abomination buddy, uh, Gigas. Uh, I think that's the pronunciation. <laughs> I, I, mean, I usually say Gigas, but either, either or is fine, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Who, and, by the way, is very based on you too, just saying. <laughs> And how that, I always think about, like, I I find it really memorable when a game all of a sudden shifts from the comedic and the cute and the warm to the kind of horrifying. Yeah. And the terrifying and the, and I think when you have those two contrasting flavors, uh, it can really stand out and be extremely memorable. And I'm wondering, like, what are your guys' favorite memories from this game? 
Well, I really love the intro, and I really love the feeling that you are just a kid setting off into this great unexplored world. Uh, just I, the beginning of the game is my favorite part of the game, like the first three or four towns. But I think in terms of favorite so, moments, that's interesting because so many people would say that the beginning is like the slog that you have to get through. I kind of like when it's just you, and it's like the uh, everything mm-hmm. just feels so big and intimidating. But I think my favorite moment in the game is probably Magic Ants, where you you basically go inside of your own head. And yeah. uh, you meet the enemies you've defeated. You see your old friends. Uh, it's really trippy. The music is great. Uh, in the Japanese version, Ness is naked. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> How very metal little butt. solid. Yeah, it was ahead of its time in terms of uh, butts. <laughs> um, I think when the game really started to click with me was when I uh, visited the town um, Happy Happy Village, I believe it's called. Oh, and yes, uh, the Scientologist. The Scientologist, and that was a bit of a tonal whiplash. That w- that's what made me realize, okay, this is a lot more than just a cute little fun RPG, uh, because you have a town full of cultists who worship the color blue and look uncomfortably like clansmen. And that's also when it becomes clear that the adults in this game uh, cannot be relied upon. This is all about kids saving the world and making it better because um the adults are so easily manipulated and scared and uh just for the most part quite useless and that really struck home with me plus the music in that area is just just fantastic it's so creepy oh it's yeah i can i can hear it in my head right now (laughs) yeah it's just that weird like woo in the background it's just uh so so final thoughts like one of the things that we like do is uh, one of the reasons that i've like so final thoughts, one of the criteria that I have going for this this entire list is I'm trying to pick RPGs wherever possible that hold up. Right. And that's why I'm trying to avoid RPGs that came out relatively recently. And Earthbound definitely holds up. And I, I think there are a few reasons for that. I, I think the fact that it's had a presence in Smash Brothers is definitely mm-hmm. one. Uh, the fact that it's managed to spread by word of mouth is another. But even today, I think it's just... I, I've repeated this over and over and over again. I, I just think you don't have a lot like it in no, terms no. of the world. I mean, you're just describing the cult that that worshipped the color blue. That was kind of like the KKK. I mean, you're not going to find that. <laughs> you really I mean, aren't. Maybe you'll find that sort of in Fallout, but it's not going to be nearly that interesting. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, because it's just... Uh, that's actually one reason I was going to give you about how and why it holds up is because there is... Other than maybe Mother 3, there is nothing out there like Earthbound at all. What yeah, I agree. You, it's, it um, it's, uh, I totally agree with Nadia and you too, Kat. There's nothing else like it. And I feel in terms of a 20, almost 25-year-old game, it's still very playable. Yeah, I if, think so too, If you yeah. played like Pokemon or whatever, it's not very different in terms of walking around a map, fighting enemies, things like that. So I feel like it's not so crusty that you can't get into it anymore. And even if you feel it's a little old-fashioned for you, the story, the music, the characters, the graphics, I think that will sort of overtake anything you don't like about the game. Mm-hmm. Well, you can play it. Uh, now you can play it, which is really awesome. Hooray! Uh, you can play it on the Super Nintendo uh, sorry, the SNES Classic and the Wii U and 3DS Virtual Consoles. So it is available in a way that it simply wasn't before. Sadly, it doesn't seem like Mother 3 is ever going to come out here. Rats. Well, Nintendo, Nintendo keeps being mean to us. Uh, I heard that there's a, a tease in, Mar- in WarioWare Gold where uh-huh. uh, Wario complains about people keep asking him about three mothers and he has no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> Wario would troll us like that. He not, would. Not pure Waluigi. It felt He's like on the our moment side. was a couple years ago, 
And instead, we got Earthbound Beginnings. Mm. Which is good. It's still a piece mm. of Nintendo history that was it translated is. and put away. And now, now it's available. It's not very fun, but it's still worth checking out, I think, if you like Mother. Yeah, if they wanted us to get, if they wanted to get us to buy a Switch online plan, they could just say that they're giving away a free copy of Mother Three with every subscription. Maybe they'll surprise us. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> All right, Bob. Thanks for coming on the show. Where can we find you? Plug something. Uh, yeah, I'm on. <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, I'm on Twitter as Bob Servo. I also host, as Cat said in the intro, uh, Talking Simpsons and What a Cartoon. And those are some fun podcasts I do all about animation and The Simpsons. So check them out. They're both uh, freely available online and wherever you listen to podcasts. But we also have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Talking Simpsons. So much bonus stuff happening there. And of course, I'm also on Retronauts. I'm doing a lot of podcasts. And I think you're, I think the listeners know what Retronauts is because it used to be on US Gamer. But uh, yes. that's a classic gaming podcast. So yeah, just check out my podcast. Support me if you can and i'd appreciate it thank you it's our sibling podcast retronauts uh which i have been on in a time or two and i was on the dreader tatum episode uh the homer they fall and talking simpsons which was a lot of fun so yeah if you want to hear cat she's been on a few of our shows yep so go check that out all right let's continue on to the mailbag All right, Nadia, last time on Acts of the Blood God, we posted our PAX West live celebration of Mass Effect in which I had Matt Allen, Austin Walker, and Mike Williams all together with me in a big old room. And if you haven't listened to that, it's a great podcast. You should totally listen to it. I'm not normally a big fan of live type podcasts because I find that the, the interplay and the fun that can characterize a really good podcast tends to get lost mm-hmm. but i feel like the interplay was working really well in that podcast and there's a good back and forth with the audiences it, it was good stuff so please. yeah your audience was really engaged yeah yeah we were having a great time so please download it, it it's great but uh panda Pandalol says i'm so glad matt brought up the soundtrack there at the end even for being an 80s synth styled sci-fi styled soundtrack it's so incredibly distinctive and it takes me right back to my first playthrough every time also, I always wonder, am I the only one that does not care one whit for Bioware's romance mechanics? My femship is all, no time for love, Dr. Jones. I'm actually about <laughs> to begin a new playthrough in the next few weeks. I've never played ME3, so I bought the trilogy on PS3 and f- plan to finally resolve this. Good show. Uh, I think that it can be extremely variable because often what happens is ever- the game always climaxes heh, with yeah. uh, the big sex scene. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry. so... <laughs> I'm in grade two. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, well, I, I, it was me first, but I, I I do think that... I think that Bioware was a front runner, mm-hmm, and then definitely. other games it ultimately did it better. Did I think it. Witcher 3 is a good example. I think Persona 4 is a good example, to be honest. Well, yeah. I did I, I, I did hook up with... What was her name? The, the weird chick, Marie. I liked mm-hmm. her. And I was like, aww, I got, I scored. I'm I was amazing. like that if you screwed around with too many people that you would get really, uh, you get multiple heartbreaks at the end. And you'd just be like, oh my god, I'm so terrible. Yeah, that actually, I think uh, Stardew Valley adopted that too uh, with one of their updates. If you try to romance uh, a bunch of people at once, you get called out and it's pretty savage. Funk, uh, Funktron says, I finally beat Mass Effect 1 for the first time last spring. There's a lot that doesn't work well, but my overall feel in the game was very positive. 
It's clearly an incredibly ambitious game, and the fact that it works at all is a great satellite of love says it's weird hearing the softballing of the series continuity imploding, but then again, it's in the glow of the first one. Yeah, it was a little outside of the scope of the discussion that we were having. Um, Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I don't know that the continuity necessarily completely exploded. They couldn't stick the landing, but Mm -hmm. most people would agree that Mass Effect 3 was really good until the end. Yeah, that's. um, I have a a friend who still feels very personally victimized by the ending of Mass Effect 3. Well, there there is the director's cut where they uh, improved it, but... Not good enough, apparently. Well, I mean, it was so ambitious that it just, it was never going to really be able to follow through on all of the expectations that fans had for it. No, no, but see, that's why I grew up with with, with uh, Animorphs and that ending that disappointed everyone. We had our, we got our disappointment with space Didn't they all die? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, the end of Animorphs was really dark. It was really dark. And that whole series was dark as hell. Nuclear Vomit says, Male Shepherd all the way, and the only renegade to annoying NPCs. Just look at that right cross to the paparazzi. He is a POS with a heart of gold and managed to save everyone at the end of Mass Effect 2. Cam Chow says, Mass Effect 1 is definitely my fave in the series. I was so happy when I saw Andromeda brought back a Mako-like vehicle. Loved zooming around planets with that thing. Also really loved the armor and weapons variety in 1 compared to how boring they made that part in 2 and 3. I totally agree, actually. And Nice Guy Neon says, I loved Mass Effect so much that when Mass Effect 2 made its changes, I completely rejected it. It wasn't until Mass Effect 3 that I appreciated the series as a whole. The storytelling, cinematic nature, gameplay, characters, writing, it all came together to make an experience that thrived on the idea of what's possible and a sense of exploration at the time was unparalleled. I have over 100 hours on every Mass Effect game on Origin alone, but I also played them on 360 before that. This is a very special game and series, and I find it completely unacceptable to ever start from anything but the first game. Saren will go down as one of the best antagonists in gaming, and that final third of Mass Effect took the intensity in writing to another level. This is a standard for story-based action RPGs, and we are lucky to have it. There you go, right? I mean, yeah. it doesn't get any more ringing of an endorsement than that. By the way, Nadia, you should really play Mass Effect, because it just seems like your kind of game. In yeah, the I know, sense I, know of, I would like it. I mean, you're really into the whole, like, let, let's pair everybody up kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> like the ongoing storylines. Yeah, no, it's just, up. you would dig it. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you. Like, uh, maybe one day it'll be remastered for Switch, and you can play it. It'll be great. That, I'd be the first person in line if that happened. Absolutely. That'd be a great Switch game. Yeah, there you go. Come on, Bioware. Yeah. yeah. Mass Effect trilogy on, trilogy on Switch. Let's make it happen. All right, Nadia, Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Check us out on uh, at US Gamer Net on uh, all of the relevant social media platforms as well. It's a very busy month, mm-hmm. uh, Nadia. The release schedule has officially begun. Destiny 2's big expansions here. Spider Man. Probably not going to talk about Destiny 2's expansion. I, I don't yeah, know. It feels sorry. just, I mean, it's within the scope of the podcast, but I just, I don't care. <laughs> sorry, don't care. Everyone. There's a lot of good stuff on the site right now. Um, Nadia, you interviewed Igarashi, and you uh, got him to talk about how Castlevania Symphony of the Night wouldn't have happened without Castlevania II's Simon's Quest. Yeah, that was, a, that was a really cool bit of trivia, so I think you should check that out. We also have the oral history of Spider-Man 2, which is really awesome. Like, uh, mm-hmm. Spider-Man 2, the, the game, which is probably one of the best superhero games ever made. Yeah, it was definitely one of the, it's definitely one of the most influential and best. 
And um, we had our regular uh, contributor, Doc Burford, was on the site as a guest writer. And he talked about making his game Paratopic, in which he talked about trying to redefine the walking sim. So tons of amazing stuff on the site, as always. But okay. So we're off again until next week. And we'll bring back the next entry in the Top 25 RPG Countdown. But thanks for listening. For Bob, Nani, and myself, until next time, happy adventuring.